In the third year, Daniel 10.1 of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, Daniel 10.1, who was named Belteshazzar. You would recall in chapter 1 that part of the uh, assimilation process was to rename these Hebrew young men. And so Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar. The message was true that Daniel received, and it was one of great conflict. If you have an NIV, it says it concerned a great war, but he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. Now, just to set the context, Daniel's chapters 10 through 12, or these three chapters, 10 and 11 and 12, form a unit. They're a unit of prophecy that moves into the uh, centuries that would follow Daniel's life on down through Greece, etc., as we've looked at the Roman Empire in Daniel 2 and 7, and up through history from the time that the calendar switched into the A.D. time all the way up until the return of Jesus Christ. So we're going to see that in chapters 10, 11, and 12. Chapter 10 sets the table by telling us how the vision came to Daniel, and then chapters 11 and 12 will give us the content. Chapter 11, we'll see over 100 prophecies that detail things future to Daniel. And in chapter 12, we will see the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection, and the rapture, all in chapter 12. So we have some exciting things ahead. The vision in this unit of all three chapters is revealed to Daniel as he sought the Lord. Some of the questions we may want to ask as we begin to tackle a chapter like this is why do we have so much conflict in the world? What is it about humanity that causes us to have conflict in nations, in cities, in families, and as individuals? Sometimes we don't need to look past our own front door to know about conflict. Conflict seems to be a common human dilemma. Where does it come from? Well, much of the conflict in the world, when you look at the big picture of the world, could be attributed, at least in part, to a war, a spiritual war that is being waged. The hatred against the nation of Israel is one example of that. How do we explain this little nation in the Middle East receiving so much persecution and hatred throughout you know, thousands of years? Well, it's explained in the sense that the Messiah would come from the nation of Israel and, of course, the nation of Israel uh, is God's chosen people. And, of course, the church is grafted in. When you look at the world, you look at wars that have happened through time, you look at the conflicts happening even today, it's not hard to imagine that there must be something more sinister, something deeper going on than just us fighting over land and territory and being selfish and petty. There is something more sinister going on. I'm not saying it's happening behind every scuffle or every conflict, but the major movements of the world, and especially these world empires that have been unfolded to us in this book, seem to have territorial powers or spiritual powers influencing them. I'll give you some examples that would resonate. Some of you have studied Isaiah 14, and you know in Isaiah 14, there's a whole section about Satan and his five famous I will statements. And he's basically saying, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to elevate my throne above the stars, etc. Well, that prophecy actually starts out addressing the king of Babylon. But then it moves into this other spiritual entity 
behind the king. I'm pretty sure it's Babylon's king there. And then the king of Tyre, being addressed in Ezekiel chapter 28, also moves in to a deeper picture of Satan. And the example is that he was in the Garden of Eden, and, and he was made beautiful by God and became prideful. These examples in Scripture take you from a human leader to a spirit, and in this case, both in both instances, theologians would largely agree, Satan as a power behind the power. When you study the book of Revelation, you know that the beast or the Antichrist ultimately is energized by satanic power, including the false prophet. So this is not foreign to the Bible that you would have a world leader who would then have some sort of dark power. Now what we want as Christians is to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, right? But we know there's always a battle between good and evil. So while we might experience the power of the Holy Spirit, there is such a thing as dark power, not on par with God's power. Satan is not God's equal on the evil side. He is a fallen angel. But he still has power, and the power is significant. All you have to do is read the book of Job to see how much power he can throw at a single individual and other places that we can see where he tries to ruin people in possession and so forth. And so, as Daniel marks the time, the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, he tells us that he got a message. And that message was one of great war. It concerned great war, or it concerned a great conflict. There is something deeper, more sinister going on in the world. The question we might ask is why? The answer is because there is a spiritual struggle going on in the heavenlies or in heavenly places. As you look at uh, Ephesians 6.12, there are principalities, powers, rulers, spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That's kind of a recap of uh, Ephesians 6.12. And so there is a battle beyond the battle. As Christians, we are to take up the full armor of God in light of that battle. And so uh, some of you got a hold of the book that I wrote on it. There's been a lot of good books written on spiritual warfare and some not so good. But I wrote a book called Suit Up, Putting on the Full Armor of God to tackle some of these ideas and why God has given you specific pieces of armor for specific ways that you may be tempted or attacked. You have a belt of truth because Satan is a liar. You have a breastplate of righteousness because the Lord, the, uh, Lord wants you to be righteous, but Satan wants to infiltrate your heart and pollute it. You have a shield of faith with which you can extinguish how many? All of the flaming missiles of the wicked one. You have shoes of peace to go and preach the gospel because the enemy often tries to steal your peace. You have a helmet of salvation because the enemy is always trying to lie to us about who we are in Christ. And we need to be secure in our salvation. And this is how it works. A sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So God, being your Father, loves you cares about you he's obviously eternal and he knows the battle much better than we do and so he's given us spiritual provisions for a spiritual battle so don't feel like just because you hear about such things and it may be new to some of you that you're out there naked and alone that's not the case at all in fact the armor of god is god himself when you really break down what the armor is uh, romans 13 tells us in verse 14 put on the lord jesus christ 
which is synonymous with putting on the armor of light. Whenever you put on the armor, it's just simply a metaphor for putting on the power of God. And that's what you have as a Christian, is you have the power of God. Now notice in verse 1 that it's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Persia has now uh, become the world empire, uh, taking it from the hands of Babylon. And at this time when Daniel receives this message, he is uh, probably 88 to 90 years old. Because remember, there was going to be a 70-year captivity, and most scholars believe that Daniel was taken as an early to mid-teenager, 16 to 18 years of age. 70 years go by, it's not hard to figure out that Daniel's in his late 80s. So he's an older guy. And talk about a guy that's been fighting the good fight. You know, from the time he's, he was a teenager, he's a captive in a foreign land, and yet he has continued to take stands for God. Would to God that we could do the same, right? In our cushy lives, you know, sometimes we think we have it so hard until we look at how Daniel had to endure his life, right? Whatever you may be going on, maybe going through and maybe going on in your life tonight, be of good cheer. It could get worse, <laughs> right? Just compare yourself to Daniel, and I think it will hearten you that uh, we have a lot of good things to celebrate. Now, what was going on at this time is that there was a movement of captives returning to the Holy Land, to Israel. This is recorded in the book of Ezra, and I, I think it's important that you see this, so go ahead and find Ezra. You've got to go back uh, before the Psalms, right before the book of Nehemiah, and I want to sh just show you the, some of the timelines and things that are going on so you can see the battle within the battle. This is Ezra 1, verse 1. Ezra 1, verse 1. Now it says, Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, now we saw it was the third year in Daniel 10, 1. Ezra 1, 1 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, word of the Lord, Ezra 1, 1, by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. They're a world empire at this point. And he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, you all know that in 586 B.C., in the last wave of the besieging of the land of Israel by Nebuchadnezzar, he destroyed the temple, and it was laid in rubble. And it laid there in rubble for 70 years. Ezra returned, along with Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, and we'll look at that in a moment, and began to address what was in rubble. Uh, 50,000 Israelites returned from Babylon, approximately, flip over to Ezra 2, take a look. You can see, now these, verse 1, are the people of the province who came out of the captivity of the exiles, Ezra 2, 1, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem, to Judah, each to his city. Now, I am not going to read this list to you, and I'm sure you're all very grateful for it. But if you scan it really quick in your Bible, notice that you have names and numbers. And if you go down in the section uh, and you total up, uh, just, you know, go, go on down to verse 40, 
You got Levites listed there, singers, sons of Asaph. You got 128 listed there. You've got in verse 42, gatekeepers. You've got more and more numbers and so forth. If you skip down all the way to verse 65, servants are listed there, 7,337. Uh, if you combine that with the whole assembly numbered at 42,360 in verse 64 of Ezra 2, you can see how we are getting close to a number of 50,000. And so this is the number of people that returned after the captivity. But they returned to a state of rubble. And the bigger sad disappointment in someone like Daniel's heart and mind being close to 90, a side note, he never went back. He did not return to the land that he loved. So his prayer and his agonizing and his desire to understand was not for him. It was for his people. And for some of you who are a little older in this room, and maybe for some of you, you've passed the midway point of your life. When, when that happens, you start to think in bigger terms of just your own lifetime. You start to think about children and grandchildren and what they will inherit and how well you've stewarded what God entrusted to you. How well you've stewarded the heritage of a country and, of, of course, the heritage of a call. For me as a pastor um, and a dad, and, of course, as a husband, things uh, like stewardship mean a lot to me. And so I, I begin to think in those terms that I'm not, I'm not just acting and praying for myself when I have to take a stand on an issue or, uh, you know, make sure my voice is heard in terms of the clarity of the word of God or, or make a call to the church. It, it's bigger than just an individual. And I, and I want you guys to see that for Daniel, that's what it was. He wasn't doing this for himself. He, he didn't go back. He was almost 90. He may have been too feeble but he still believed that he could fight through prayer. And some of you, you know, you're, you're at a point in your life where maybe you, you feel like, well, I'm a, I'm a little out of the, uh, the war in the sense that maybe I'm not on the front lines anymore, but you can still battle in prayer, and your battle can be in the heavenlies, if you will, fighting the good fight of faith for others who may have to do the work in the future. You could think of maybe perhaps Daniel praying for guys like Nehemiah and Ezra who were younger at this time and saying, Lord, would you strengthen them to finish well? Um, so th those are things that we need to think about as, we, as time goes by. In chapter 4, you get an idea of the battle. It says in verse 3 of Ezra 4, but Zerubbabel and Joshua, or Joshua, the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel, said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord, a God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Uh, what happened, and this is inevitable when you're doing the work of God, there was opposition. The people of the land, namely here the Samaritans, began to oppose the real rebuilding project of the temple. They would prefer it be in rubble. And so notice what happened. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, these 50,000 or so that returned, and frightened them from building, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So what we know from other scriptures is that when this happened, the 
king got somewhat annoyed about the conflict, and the building project to rebuild the temple stalled for 16 years. The work was put on hold because of pressure, fear tactics, and you name it. And this wouldn't be the first time that the enemy used fear and discouragement and distraction to stall out the work of God or to stall out something that God's called you or me to. And I'll tell you this, that even with the 16 years stall out, it was still, I think, in 515 B.C. that the temple was uh, re-erected and rededicated. If you go from 586 to 515, that's around, what, 70 years. And so another 70 years from the destruction in 586 to the rededication of the temple in 515. So God even used the, de the delay to be divine. So sometimes we think, oh man, it's been this many years since I've, you know, maybe I, I got distracted or I got off track or whatever. The Lord can even use those delays for his purposes. And so um, spiritual warfare was happening. And I want you to see around the rebuilding of the temple through very human means. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, but it sure seems like we wrestle against flesh and blood, which just means people. And so sometimes I, when I read Paul's uh, words that we don't wrestle against people, I want to say, Paul, are you sure? <laughs> because people certainly seem to be the problem in most instances. But people are often pawns in satanic conception. Not every time, not behind every tree, not in every circumstance. But in these big things, the attempt to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, you can be assured that the devil did not want that to happen and that he was gleeful that it laid in rubble for 70 years. Because remember, his target sites have been leveled against the people of Israel really from the beginning. So this is what we have. Now, in that delay time, there's a scripture in the book of Haggai, which is right before Zechariah, towards the end of the Old Testament. And Pastor Michael is already realizing that this will be a two-part message, so don't, don't get too nervous, because some of you are saying, there's like 20-some verses, and he, he's done one verse. Oh, Lord, help him. <laughs> I feel you. All right? But we're not going to do the whole chapter tonight, so be a good cheer. Just find Haggai, because I'm even struggling to find it up here. Haggai, chapter 1. Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house lies desolate? This house, the temple, lies desolate. Verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns, earns wages to be put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. 
You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, someone might ask. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs uh, to his own house. Now, this is during that 16-year lapse where the people decided that they would just be about their own business instead of God's business. And it's very easy to do in a world like ours to lose sight that the Bible says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be what? will be added to you. And we get distracted. And there, look, there's a lot of things to distract us. But oftentimes, we'd have to say there's been periods of the church and perhaps it's true today. I'll let you make your own uh, conclusion. But the church can often be categorized as pitiful. And I'm sorry to say it. And I count myself among that group that oftentimes there's no other word than pitiful, lethargic. Um, everything else comes first. And the things of God suffer. There's been periods of time when the church has been revived. And whenever we talk about revival, we're talking about the church, not the world, the church. And when the church wakes up and gets busy, good things happen. And I, I do pray that we're on uh, the cusp of a revival in this country. Turn to the next book to your right. This is Zechariah 3, and it gives you this picture of this warfare that's going on with the leaders of the nation of Israel at this time when you have this backdrop. Zechariah 3, look at verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest, who would represent the nation here as the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, Zechariah 3, 1, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Zechariah 3, 2, Satan. Indeed, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire or plucked from the captivity, if you will? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy or befouled garments standing before the angel. This is strong language. Literally, it could be fouled with excrement. And he spoke and he said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. And again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Keep in mind, he's the high priest. And then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord, most would see Jesus here standing by. The turban, if you turn back to the book of Daniel, had this writing on it. It would say, holiness to the Lord. And the high priest uh, on the day of atonement and so forth would have to be acceptable, prepared himself to make atonement for the sins of the nation. You would imagine in this picture, the nation had a lot to ask God to forgive them for. Amen. <laughs> Seventy years of captivity, not honor honoring the Sabbath, all their idolatry. And of the people that returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, 500 miles, it was a very small segment of the nation. Most people had become comfortable in Babylon. So, 50,000 people returning to the homeland or the promised land was a very small percentage of those who could have gone. But those who could have gone didn't go. 
able-bodied people did not return. They did not take up the, ca- the uh, task of rebuilding the house of the Lord because they had become comfortable in Babylon. I'll let you chew on that one, but I think you can see the application there. In those days, Daniel says, verse 2, Daniel 10, 2, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three entire weeks. 21 days, Daniel was mourning. Over what? Well, I think over the condition of the nation of Israel, the fact that so few people had returned, and I think also because Daniel was longing that the work would be done, but he was sensing the spiritual warfare and the overall lethargy of his own people. So we've, get, we've gotten the backdrop there in uh, the book of Ezra and so forth. Daniel says, During this time of mourning, I did not eat, verse 3, any tasty food. I ate no choice food, NIV, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment at all or anoint myself until the entire three weeks were completed. Daniel went on a 21-day fast. It would seem that the fast maybe went back to what he did in chapter 1. And just a side note, Daniel's diet in chapter 1 of vegetables and water was not his permanent diet. And some of you are saying, praise the Lord. Because if this dude ate vegetables and drank water his whole life, dare to be a Daniel, you can forget about that. (laughs) He didn't. Verse 3 implies that his diet would include meat and wine, which was very common to a, a Jewish uh, menu. But during this fast time, he did not. He ate bland food. I don't know exactly everything included there, but, you know, bland food is, uh, is bland. <laughs> Have you ever gone on one of those diets where um, you've decided to eat oatmeal and you decided you're only going to sweeten it with natural ingredients? Anybody ever tried that before? If you throw a banana in there, it may help. But I have to tell you, the prepackaged oatmeal that's maple spice or cinnamon apple, oh baby, when you've had that and then you try to go with the plain oatmeal with maybe a banana in it, it ain't happening. I would be mourning for 21 days if I had to (laughs) eat that food. Now, Daniel is fasting because he's burdened. I touched on this in an earlier chapter, but I just would say, if you are burdened over something happening, a decision, there's no specific model to how you should do this, but you could restrict your diet, you could skip a meal and use that time to pray, Instead of eating, you could take that money that you might have spent on lunch and give it to the work of the Lord. There's a number of ways that you could fast before the Lord. Just make sure when you fast, it's ultimately for spiritual and not physical reasons. I'm fasting so I can lose 20 pounds. And I hope I get some spiritual bennies from it too. No, no, no. Let the spiritual drive your fast. Okay? It's not what goes into a man that defiles a man. It's what comes out of a man or woman that defiles them. So whether I'm no, not the worse or the better if I eat or don't eat, if I, if I partake of certain things, of course, within biblical limits or don't partake, I'm neither the worse or the better in terms of my standing before God. What God cares about is right here. 
He cares about that. My heart drives, if I fast, if it should be driven by a spiritual um, sense in my heart from the Lord. Amen? That's what should drive a fast. The details of it, um, you can do it between you and the Lord. But I, I would get wisdom and counsel if you are considering a fast and you haven't done it before, or if you have blood sugar issues or whatever, talk to somebody. Feel free to talk to one of the pastors and we would ha- be happy to talk to you. Now, on the 24th day of the first month, that's the first month of the religious calendar of Israel, the month of Nisan, which I believe is the month of Abib in Exodus, which is the first religious month wherein the Passover is celebrated, okay? So the first month, you could write down as the month of Nisan. That's the Babylonian name for it. I think it's Abib in Hebrew. While I was by the bank of the great river that is the Tigris. You have the Tigris and Euphrates. Here's the Tigris. And it's the 24th day of the month. Now, if you recall, the Passover in the month of Nisan or Abib starts on the 10th. And uh, I'm, tr- I'm doing this from memory now, but I, I think it's uh, moving from the 10th on there. And the major uh, Passover, I think, uh, would end on the 14th day. So you guys can check me on that. So we have 10 days from the time of the Passover. Now, what was the time of the Passover celebrating for Israel? The time when they were released from what? Egyptian bondage. And God said, okay, you're going you're gonna to do the unleavened bread thing, and you're going to sacrifice the lamb at twilight, and you're going to go out. And the Passover became a regular celebration of the Jewish people. Isn't it interesting that all of this is happening in the month of the Passover? Jesus died on the weekend of the Passover. This is all interconnected. And so if you want more on this, you can read Leviticus 23, verses 1 through 14, where in the month of Nisan, the Jews celebrate the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Firstfruits. The Feast of Passover, the week before, what do you do? You sweep out the leaven out of your house. This is a picture of sin. You clean out the house. You do the spring cleaning. You get out all the leaven, because a little leaven leavens what? The whole lump of dough. You can look at 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. We could say it this way. One bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. So during the Passover, the Jews sweep out the house. They cleanse it to prepare themselves for the celebration of God's deliverance from Egyptian bondage. So it is interesting that this is what's happening. Now Daniel lifts up his eyes and suddenly... Verse 5, he says, I looked, and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen whose waist was girded with a belt of pure uh, gold of Euphaz. His body also was like beryl. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words was like the sound of a tumult or the sound of a stadium. That's the idea. A great multitude. So Daniel says, okay, I was fasting, I was praying, here's the day of the month it was, and all of a sudden I looked, and here's the vision that I saw, and the vision was of this shining 
described as a man here, dressed in linen, which would speak of uh, perhaps the garments of the high priest, the waist girded with a belt of pure gold of Euphaz, body uh, like barrel, face like lightning, eyes flaming torches, arms and feet like, 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 see that? It's a like it, simile. The gleam of polished bronze. I'm trying to explain to you, says Daniel, what it looked like. The sound of his words, like the sound of a great multitude. Man, I looked, you know, three days after the end of my fast, and wow, what I beheld was this incredible being shining in glory. Now this description fits well with another description, which is in Revelation 1. So, Revelation 1 should be easy to find. It's all the way at the back of your Bible, just before your concordance. Okay, Revelation 1. Look at verse 12. Here's what John says, Revelation 1, 12. I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Revelation 1, 13. In the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his breast, was a golden girdle. 14. His head and his hair were white like uh, white wool, like snow. His eyes were like what? A flame of fire. His feet, verse 15, Revelation 1, were like burnished bronze, and when it, when it has been caused to glow in a furnace... His voice was like the voice or the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, says John, I felt, fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first. And I am the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now, back to Daniel, and we'll finish for tonight. There's a little debate about who this one is, because it seems like it could be an angel at some points, but the description fits well with other descriptions of the glory of God, and specifically, the description of Jesus, and there's no doubt it's Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. So what did Daniel see at the beginning of this three-unit uh, prophecy to kick off the whole thing? The vision he saw was a vision of Jesus Christ because he is the answer to all that ails us. The problems for Israel, world conflict, people in darkness, spiritual warfare, the need for forgiveness, the need for redemption is all wrapped up in one person. His name is Jesus. He's the one that's coming again. He's the one who came the first time to rescue us from sin and death. He's coming again a second time to judge the living and the dead. Jesus is the answer to the dilemma of Daniel. What's going to happen to my people? Where is the future going? Will they survive? Will they rebuild the temple? Will my eyes 
ever get to see this or hear about it? Will I hear in heaven one day that they made good, that they did well, that Ezra and Nehemiah stood tall and stood through the tests? This is all that was on Daniel's heart and mind. And he found his answers in the face of one who shines like the sun. In fact, his face shines brighter than the noonday sun because he made the sun. Do you believe that? He made the world, the sun, the moon, the stars. They're all the work of his hands. From nothing comes nothing. The universe had a beginning. The science backs it up. If there was nothing, then there would be nothing. Because from nothing comes nothing. And since science has proved that the universe had a beginning through what's called in science the Big Bang, then that means there has to have been something that caused the universe. What can nothing cause? Nothing. Because nothing isn't even a thing. It's just nothing. And so from nothing, nothing can come because nothing is no thing. Everybody with me? Is that? I think so, Pastor Mike. So if the universe had a beginning, there had to be something before the something. Because if there was nothing, there would be nothing. Man, that's a good, solid scientific argument, isn't it? There's a God. The only reason the universe is here with six million forms of plants and animals and your eye and your brain and your circulatory system and reproduction, self-healing of the body is because God in the beginning made the heavens and the earth. And you know who the creator is? His name is Jesus. All things were made through him and by him and apart from him. Nothing was made that was made. In him was life and that life is the light of men. It's the story of the world. Daniel, I know you're worried. Daniel, I know you've been praying and fasting. Here's your answer. His name is Jesus. There's a lot coming. There's a lot more to be told. Daniel in verse 7, back to the text and we'll finish for tonight. He says, I alone saw the vision while the men who were with me, Daniel 1, 7, or I'm sorry, 10, 7, Daniel 10, 7. Now I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, and while the men who were with me did not see the vision, nevertheless, great dread fell on them, and they ran away to hide themselves. <laughs> well, they didn't even see the vision. What did they see? I don't know, but whatever happened, great dread fell upon them. You know how you have people who kind of casually say, yeah, I, 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 I had a meeting with the Lord the other day, and yeah, it was kind of like they were sitting at Starbucks, having, knocking a coffee back with their buddy. No, if you have an encounter with the living Lord who spoke the universe into existence, our God is mighty and awesome and powerful. And though He loves us, He is holy. He dwells in inapproachable light. He's powerful. Daniel says, man, I had great dread. I didn't say, hey, you want to go get a Starbucks? I said, man, this is scary. And the guys that didn't even see it ran away. 
They had great dread. They sensed, like the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, who said, the men who journeyed with me stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. When you're in the presence of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Amen? He is holy. And yet, He loves you so much, He became one of us to die on that cross for us. Amazing love. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. When people meet the Lord like Isaiah, when he says, I saw the Lord, he says, man, I was ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the Lord, the King. Do you know in John 12, Isaiah says, or John says, Isaiah saw Jesus and his glory. Jesus is God. And when Daniel is wondering about his answers, the first thing he needs to see is the Messiah, Jesus, because he's going to be the answer to all of this. Yes, details are coming. Yes, nations that will rise and fall. Yes, uh, 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 an end seven years with tribulation and difficulty. Yes, but the answer is Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much that we can tackle a little of Daniel 10. Uh, I think it's important that we understand what was going on in the nation uh, the battle to rebuild the temple, the battle for the homeland, the battle for people to return to the things of God, to truly be at a place where they could be restored in every sense of that word. And Lord, we know we're in a battle too, but we know the battle belongs to you. And we know that you will fight for us. And so we just pray that whatever battles we may be facing tonight, we just get a fresh vision of who you are. I think maybe that's one of the main things tonight is that when we're struggling, carrying burdens, uh, stressing, wondering, we need a fresh vision of Jesus Christ, our King, our Lord, our Redeemer, our Maker, our Savior, and our incredible King, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would bless each precious person that's come out tonight. You know every heart. You know what they need in their lives. May we all get a fresh vision of the powerful Messiah, our Savior, our Lord, our, our King, and our friend. May we walk with him in our lives, Lord. May we remember words that often he shared with his own. Don't be afraid. It's me. Don't be afraid. I'll, I'll give you the strength that you need. If you haven't met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, maybe you feel like you've been far away, would you just keep your head and heart bowed and just say, Lord, I, I want to know you. I've had my doubts. I've had my struggles. But I want to flee that kingdom of darkness and come into the kingdom of light. So I trust you tonight. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be my King. I want to follow you. I believe in your death on the cross. I believe in your resurrection from the dead. And I just want to know you better. If you prayed that, he'll meet you tonight where you are. If you rededicated your life in these moments, he'll meet you where you are. If you're a saint and maybe you've just been struggling with the things that come at us all, fears and doubts and self-doubts, struggles with your own walk sometimes, your own abilities, your own gifting, just rest in him tonight. He is more than sufficient to provide everything you need. 
that pertains to life and godliness. So Lord, bless your people. May your living waters flow out tonight, encouraging blessing. If people find themselves in battles, let them know that you will give them everything they need to be successful. All they have to do is put on what you provide. We love you and we worship you in Jesus' holy name. Amen.